Well, as we come into John chapter 1, verse 11, I want you to, to listen with me. These are the words of eternal life. God sending his son for us. The Bible makes it very clear that he was a savior, that he was a sanctifier, that he was a reconciler. And these verses that we find here in John chapter 1 are verses that have many major themes in them. Of course, these verses would go from verse 1 to verse 18. We're taking a section. But it is the main theme about Jesus Christ being the Son of God. I sometimes wonder how people would live in this life without knowing that with absolute certainty. As you see the wars and threatenings of wars and rumors of wars and and we see plagues and pestilence and we see sickness and death everywhere it seems. But God sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, the Lord, into this wicked world to save a wretch as me. Some of the key words that you find throughout this is life, is light, witness, and glory. So when we look at these words here today, I want us to think about those things because the remainder of the Gospel of John develops this theme all the way through it, how the eternal word of God, Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, became flesh. There's not another religion out there that comes close to this understanding. Not one person could have wrote a book the way this Bible was written. All the books that have been written could never compare to the Word of God. Out of all the books that are written, the Word of God is the book that is the most popular all the way down through the centuries. No other book but this one. Because this book comprises over 40 different authors, over a total of 4,000 years, and never one of the authors contradicted another author, but brought everything into perfect harmony. And the perfect harmony was Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And he ministered unto all them that would believe in him and be born again, saved, reconciled, regenerated. And so when I draw your attention into these verses, I want you to think about those things. As a sheep, if you are born again here today, or even as an unbeliever, where you've never heard and never come to the understanding of the truth. The Bible makes it very clear that the, the natural man has no ability to understand anything that I will speak of here today. But the spiritual man, them that have been born again, them that have been brought into God's story, will have a full understanding of what we will say from the pulpit today. And so when we come into John chapter 1, verse 11, the Bible says he came, this is Christ, unto his own, and his own received him not. This first usage of his own is referring to the whole world. There's only one Savior. There's only one name. And so when we see the word he came unto his own, we know that all of us have been created in the image of God. The Bible says in the Old Testament, he says the souls of all men are mine. 
And that is God, our creator, that has stated that. And so when we look here, the second, where he says he came unto his own and his own received him not, refers to the Jewish nation. And we know that to be true. But as a creator, the world belongs to him. This world is God's property. Everything in it is God's property. So when we see all kinds of things that people are saying today, whether it be climate change, many of the other deceptions that man has a way of speaking, it's God's world. What does that mean? That means that God sustains it. Man left to his own will utterly destroy this world, very clearly. But God is the maintainer because it's his world. The world did not recognize Christ. The reason that they don't recognize him is because they are part of what we call a spiritual blindness that the Bible talks about. In John chapter 1, verse 10, it says, He was in the world, and the world was made by him, creation, us, and the world knew him not. <coughs> so here you have the creator, Jesus Christ, as we're going to see, come into the world to be a savior, and the world knew him not. That is what the scripture says. John used a second occurrence of his own more in, a, in a more narrow sense to refer to Jesus' own physical lineage, his genealogy, the Jews. Christ was a Jew, and we understand that. But although they possessed the scriptures, if we go back to the Old Testament, they testified of his person and his coming, they still did not accept him, the Jewish people. In Isaiah 65, verse 2, the word of God says, I have spread out my hands all day unto a rebellious people. That's Yahweh, God speaking to the Jewish nation, which walketh in a way that was not good after their own thoughts. A people that provoketh me, God, to anger continually to my face. That sacrifices in the gardens and burneth incense upon the altars a brick. So when we look here, God says, they provoke me with a rebellious heart. Many today that will not come to Christ have a rebellious heart, as you and I did prior to God bringing us into his story. The Bible refers to him as those that hate God. You and I were haters of God before we came to an understanding of God before God stepped into our lives and brought us into his story. But Isaiah has many references to Jewish nation that rejected their Messiah. They had the books that were given to them, the oracles of God, but they had no eyes to see. They had no ears to understand. Their hearts were hardened against their own creator, God himself. In Jeremiah chapter 7, Verse 25, since the day that your fathers came forth out of the land of Egypt unto this day, I have even sent unto you all my servants, the prophets, daily rising up early and sending them, God sending them. Yet they hearkened not unto me, nor inclined their ear, but hardened 
their neck and they did worse than their fathers. So what do we see here? When you think about John 1.11, he came unto his own, but his own received him not. He came unto the world, the world receives him not. He came unto the Jewish people and they received him not. They took his prophets whom they had, he had sent unto them and they killed them. They took the Messiah and they crucified him and they put him to death, which brought destruction upon Jerusalem in AD 70, where Christ said there would not be one stone left upon another and Jerusalem was utterly destroyed and Israel was sent out into the wilderness in many different directions. And judgment has been upon Israel since AD 70. That is the word of God. Because God isn't playing games. And so when we look at a verse, like we come in here to John 1.12, what I want you to see is there is hope. We're in a season today that man is looking for hope. Women are looking for hope. Where is our hope? Where is our help? What has God done? What has our creator done? He has sent his son to be a savior, a redeemer. When we think of the name Jesus, it means save. Jesus saves. That's what that word means. So when you look here in verse 12, I want you to see it with me. But as many as receive him, this is Christ, he, God, gave the power, where it says to them he gave the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Now, when we look at the second phrase here, it describes the first, to receive him who is the word of God in John 1.1. 1, 1. means to acknowledge his claims, to place one's faith in him, in him alone, and yield or surrender allegiance to Christ. So if somebody came to you and you were truly born again, they'd say, what is the purpose of your life? The purpose of my life is to glorify God in everything I do. That's the only reason I live. There is no other reason for my life. None. Because that's what the Bible tells us. But when we look at this verse a little more closely, and I want to see this, these are a set of verses that are used quite often that give people the mistaken impression about what it means to truly believe upon Christ. And I just want to expound it just a little bit further than most of us have heard this voice, this verse explained. But as many as received him, to them he gave power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. But as many as received him, to them gave. Let's look at our word gave here. The term emphasizes the grace of God involved in the gift of salvation. Remember them famous verses there in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his, God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So when we look here, but as many as received him to them gave, that's important to understand that. The reason that you and I, if you are saved here today, are saved 
is because God stepped into your life. He's given you a new heart. You don't look at the world the way the unsaved look at the world. It's all about me. It's all about my life. I want to do what I want to do. But when you look around, you see the destruction that that brings upon many souls in this world. You wonder to yourself, how long will they rebel and harden their neck against God who is full of mercy and grace for every one of his creatures? And so what do we find here? He says, but as many as received him to them gave he the power, or we could say the right. Let's look at that. Those who receive Jesus as the word. They receive full authority to claim the exalted title of children of God. Somebody says, who am I? I am a child of God. Not everybody can make that claim in this world. We know that to be true. But what I want you to realize is that if we are a child of God, God has brought us into his family. He has adopted us into his family. Not because we were deserving, because we do good things. Absolutely not. My salvation never hinges upon how good of a person I am. Absolutely not. I would never stand before God and say, I've been the best I can, God. I've tried to do things right. I would say, Lord, I'm a wicked, vile, evil sinner, but Christ has imputed his righteousness into my heart, which means I live by the sinless Son of God, the propitiation and the salvation that he has given me by the power of the gospel, the good news. And so when you look here, he says, but as many as receive him to them gave he the power or the right to become the sons of God. I mean, when you think about his name, it's the character of his person. We're talking about Christ the righteous. When we took at a verse like John chapter 14, verse 13, and it says, and whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that's Christ, that will I do, I is Christ, that the Father may be glorified in the Son, that the Father may be glorified in the Christ. And if he shall ask anything in my name, Christ, I, Christ, will do it. And so when you look here, you think about his name, that's a very powerful name. You ever wonder why out of all the names in the world, the world loves to blaspheme Jesus Christ more than any name in the world. Why do you think that is? I know why it is. Because he is the true God, the true Messiah, the one they will stand before at the end of their life. When they take the Lord's name in vain, do they not understand that the Bible says that God will hold them accountable for each and every time that they blasphemed Jesus Christ's name. We know that to be true as a child of God, but the unbeliever may not see it in such a way. But I want you to rest assured that God's words are eternal and that every man or woman will be held accountable for blaspheming that name. And so when we look here, what does he say? But as many as receive him, here's the hope, 
To them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Now, when you come into verse 13, he identifies this very clearly. Many times as you see a track, you will have verse 12, but they will leave out verse 13. Let's see it in the context. Which were born not of blood. That means because I'm a Jew, I get to go to heaven. Remember a, a young boy years ago used to tell me because he was a Jew that he didn't have to worry about hell. He knew he'd get to heaven because all Jews go to heaven. And that's not true. There are many Jews that go to hell. Okay, many Jews go to hell, like many Gentiles go to hell. But when we look here, which are born, not of blood, not of lineage, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. So what do we see here? Not by blood, not by will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And so when we look here, of God shows the divine side of salvation. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 29, If ye know that he is righteous, ye know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of God, born of him. That's a very powerful verse. So when it says here, which were born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So in verse in 1 John 2, 29, if ye know that he is righteous, ye know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him, God, Christ. But the real text that I really want to touch is the incarnation in verse 14. Because when we think about being born again, you and I should be so thankful to know Christ. I look at people today and I see them and I talk to them about Christ and they really have no desire for Christ. They tell me they don't believe any of that stuff. They tell me it doesn't matter. I've, I've listened to that when I was a kid. I listened to that when I was a teenager. Maybe I was in a youth group. Maybe I was in a church. Maybe I was doing all these little church things that people do. And they say none of that stuff meant anything to me. It did nothing for me. I would rather die in my sins than come to Christ. And with that response, I think to myself, God has sent his only begotten son to be a savior of the world, yet people would rather trample over the blood of Christ and throw themselves into hell, knowing that one day they will die. I mean, even the men that I talk to about Christ, they say, well, no, we all die. And I said, but what will happen when you die? What will happen? And they say, I'll be buried in a hole and people will forget about me. But what if I told you that that body that you're in will definitely die? And that body that you're in right now will definitely rot. And that body that you're in will release your soul that's going to live for all eternity to go somewhere. Some will say, well, I believe in reincarnation. I believe that when I die that my soul will be reincarnated into something different. Well, that's philosophy in vain to see. That's part of Buddhism or Hinduism. But all the ends of those roads lead to death and damnation because the word of God that speaks very clearly 
It says, God sent his only begotten son into the world to save sinners such as you and I. Person says, well, I don't really believe I'm a sinner. I said, the truth as it is, have you lied? Have you committed adultery? Have you done this? Have you done that? And they say, well, yeah, we all do it. Truth. Have you ever repented of your evil and your wickedness against your creator? When God sent his only begotten son into the world to save people such as you and I, and yet God has forgiven me of all my sins based upon the imputation of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, knowing that when I die that I am more alive in Christ than I've ever been in my life, that I have nothing to fear. Fear does not grip me. Fear does not control me. I don't hide myself away. I don't isolate away. I am part of this world, but yet I'm not of this world. I'm a pilgrim and a life, a very short life, that one day my life expires and I go the way of all the world, but my soul is going to be with Christ forever, wholly based upon repentance and faith in Christ. Cost nothing. Some people say, well, I've worked really hard. Surely God will accept me because of all the good things that I've done. God will never accept you based upon your righteousness. You can do all the good things in the world. You can feed the poor. You can give your money to everybody that needs it. You can just work yourself to death and do all these things for all these people that will never buy your ticket. But when we look at this next verse here, this is what God has done for us. The incarnation is vitally important when it comes to the doctrine of Christ. So what does he say here? Verse 14. This is the main emphasis of this text. And the word, Christ, was made flesh. Look at our word. Was made flesh. While Christ as God was uncreated and eternal, we went through John 1.1 this morning, we've seen that. The word became and emphasizes Christ taking on humanity. So when we look at a verse like Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, God who has sundered times in divers matters spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. That's God the Father. Okay? God the Father who had sundered times in divers matters spake, spoke in time past into the or unto the fathers by the prophets. Verse 2. Half in these last days, we are in the last days, we have been since Christ has come into the world, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, that's Christ, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Who created the world? Christ. Verse 3, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself, Christ, purged our sins, Christ, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, Christ. He is alive today. He is risen. And so what do we see here? I mean, this reality is surely one of the most profound ever. Show me a religion that comes close to this. And I can tell you, it don't. 
I've read many other religious books and things of sort, but I know it never comes close to this. Only God could write a book such as this one. It indicates the infinite became finite. That's amazing. The eternal was conformed to time. Christ stepped into time. Like you and I, we're in time. Our life is expiring. Our time is fleeting. Surely, shortly, our life will be over. And we will be with Christ if you have repented and believed fully upon him. So when you think about Jesus Christ, the invisible became visible. Nobody had ever seen God. And here Christ walked among men. And most men could not see who he was. They were spiritually blind. The Bible refers to it as dead in their sin, but God. So when you look here, the supernatural one reduced himself to the natural, speaking of Christ again. But in the incarnation, the word did not cease to be God. When Christ was born into the world, the God-man, we call it the hypostatic union, which means that Jesus Christ, 100% God, 100% man. Um, I've read a lot of books on that. It's hard to wrap our mind around such a concept. In our human finiteness, we cannot comprehend the things of God. But when you look here, what do we find? We realize that he became God in human flesh the undimished deity in human form as a man. One of the verses that really concur to what we want to say is 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Now look what he says here. God was manifest in the flesh. He was made alive in the flesh. He had a body. Jesus Christ had a body, like you and I have a body. Justified in the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit. Now look what he says here. Seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. This is the incarnate Son of God. So when the Bible says, and the Word was made flesh, vitally important. You say, well, I'm a Christian. I do not believe in the incarnation. You are not a Christian. You are not a Christian. You cannot be a Christian and not believe in the Incarnation. Impossible. The Holy Spirit would never go with such a thought. But when we look here, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt means to pitch a tabernacle. That's what that means, to dwelt. To live in a tent. The term recalls to mind the Old Testament tabernacle, where God tabernacled among men. But when God met with Israel before the temple was constructed, he called up the tabernacle of meeting, where the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend, as we've seen in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, God chose to dwell among his people in a far more personal way by becoming a man as we are, where blood flowed through his veins as blood flows through ours. But in the Old Testament, the tabernacle was completed. 
God's Shekiah glory was what? It was in the presence. It was filled the temple, the entire structure, according to the word of God. In Exodus chapter 40, verse 34, then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And so when we look here, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, we realize that when the word became flesh, the glorious presence of deity embodied in him. Remember that verse there in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. For in him Christ dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. All the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And we beheld his glory. Although his deity may have veiled human flesh as we know it did, glimpses, if you think about it, exist in the Gospels of his divine majesty. I mean, the disciples saw glimpses of his glory in the Mount of, Trans, uh, the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember in Matthew chapter 17, verse 1, these are vitally important to know that who Jesus Christ was People say, you know, I don't really believe anything the Bible has to say. Well, I say the Bible says that those that are blind and dead in their sins will never come to an understanding of the spiritual things. But I do know that God can seek and to save all that's lost. I do know the most wicked sinner can be born again because I was that wicked sinner who was born again. The only thing man can't account for is that when we are truly born again, that our whole life changes from the inside out. We're not who we once were, and they cannot deny that. And only God can do that. And so when we look at this transfiguration in Matthew 17, the Bible says, and after six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, the small little circle here, and bringeth them unto a high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them. His face did shine as the sun, and his raiment as white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elijah, Elias, talking with him. Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. Peter was always a quick spokesman. Most of the time he wished he would have kept silent. But he spoke very quickly and very rapidly, and I totally understand his thought. But he says here very clearly, Then Peter then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make thee three tabernacles. Peter, you missed it. One for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elias, for Elijah. And while he had spake, behold, a cloud, look what he says, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved son, whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him that was the father. No man can see the father, for the father is a spirit. We worship him in spirit and in truth. You see that in John chapter 4. And then it says here, and when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were so afraid. Now, if you heard God talk, you'd fall on your face too. But what does it say? And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, be not afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. The moment was over. The glimpse of the glory was gone. 
And you would think from that day forward, if you think about that with Peter, James, and John, they'd never have another doubting moment in their life. We have seen him in the divine glory. But you and I know the rest of the story. They had their moments like we have our moments. Sometimes we wish we could live the victory all the time, but we know we have our moments. But when you look here in our verse here in verse 14, and, it, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, that is very powerful because the reference is talking about Christ's glory. It was not visible, but only spiritual. No man, I mean, Christ was talking to Pharisees and Sadducees that had a lot of the Old Testament memorized, maybe all of it. Most all of them had the five books of the, of the Tanakh uh, memorized in their heart. And here they have the Son of God standing before them, and they can't see him. They don't know him. Because they're blind. And by the testimony of God's saints, people will see there's something different about that person than other people. Maybe something different about that person even more so than professing Christians I happen to know. Something different. What is that difference? The difference is Christ. He's real to me. He, he's real to me. He's not something I made up in my mind. So when you think about the reference here to Christ's glory, I mean, it was not visible, but it was spiritual. And they saw him display the attributes and the characteristics of God. We've seen it here in the Mount of Transfiguration. The grace and the goodness and the mercy, the wisdom, the truth, and many more attributes, all in a short moment of a glimpse. The glory of the Father. I mean, Jesus as God displayed the same essential glory of the Father. They're one in essence, or one in nature. The Bible says in John chapter 8, verse 19, Then said they unto him, Where is thy father? And Jesus answered, Ye neither know me nor my father. If you had known me, you should have known my father also. Jesus made it very clear. We know the father, but we don't know the son. If you don't know the son, you don't know the father. And you that know the Father know the Son. And that's exactly what Christ said. And so when you look at a verse like John chapter 10, verse 30, he says, I and my Father are one. We're not separate, we're one. And so when we come back into our verse here, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld the glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, the only beloved one. I mean, that's what begotten we're talking about here. It's singular uniqueness in Christ. People say, how do you know Christ? He is so alive to me, I can't even tell you or express in human words what that means. There's not a doubt in my heart that Christ ever lived to make intercession for me. There's not a doubt in my heart that my hope is holy in Christ. My hope isn't in my job. My hope isn't in my money. My hope is not in my things. I know God can take them from me in a heartbeat. I know that beyond a shadow of a doubt. But I know that he ever liveth to make intercession for me. I know that he has sealed me with his Holy Spirit. I know that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead 
for me. I know that I'm forgiven of all my sin. I know that I'm clean before God based upon the righteousness and the holiness of Christ, my Lord, my Savior, my God. And so when we look here by his word, John, he emphasizes exclusive character of the the relationship between the Father and the Son, or the Godhead. Remember that verse there in 1 John 4, verse 9. This was manifested, in this was manifested the love of God toward us because God sent, God the Father sent his only begotten Son into the world. What was the purpose of God sending his only begotten Son into the world? Well, the Word of God says it, that we might live through him. If you're living your life for any other reason but Christ, you're in his death. You're in his destruction. You're in his misery and hellfire. But if you are in Christ and you are living your life through him, that when you see the world turning upside down and you see governments turning against each other and you see the political unravel that's happening in our own country and we see all the uncertainties that are coming about, to a child of God, Christ is my answer. Christ is my hope. World, do what you want. Leaders, do what you want. My hope is not in you. My hope is not in government. My hope is in Christ. My faith is in him. He has never forsook me. He's never forsaken me. He'll no wise cast me out. And so when you look here, we realize he says he's full of grace and truth. I mean, John here probably had some of the thoughts out of the book of Exodus here in mind. I mean, on that occasion, Moses requested God to display his glory to him. But we know that God said, well, you cannot see me, Moses, because if you see me, you'd be dead. But I will let my hinder parts go by. And the Bible made it very clear that they did. Because he would make his goodness pass before him. And Moses had eyes to see for a moment. And it was enough. It was so much enough that his whole head glowed. And if you and I fell into the presence of God, our heads would glow too. Because that's what the word of God says. So then as he passed by, what did God do? He declared truth. He said, the Lord, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth. That is me. I'm God. So these attributes of God's glory, they emphasize the goodness of God's character, especially in the relationship to salvation. Jesus was the Yahweh of the Old Testament. When you see the word Lord, capital O, capital, or capital L-O-R-D, we're talking about Yahweh. We're talking about Jesus Christ, God. It's hard to believe, isn't it? He displayed the same attributes when he tabernacled, tabernacled among men in the New Testament era as he does with us. Now, when you think about all these things, if you're a child of God, you have the Holy Spirit that has sealed you until the day of redemption. So how can a person rest and trust in such a Savior by the power of the Holy Spirit? How can I do all the things that God has commanded me to do by the power of the Holy Spirit? You can't do it. There ain't a command that Jesus gave us that we can do. 
The only way we're obedient is by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's why the Bible says what? Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed until the day of redemption. Child of God, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Walk in truth and be obedient. Be faithful to the end. Don't turn away from him. We cannot live this Christian life apart from Christ. That's why when you think about 